So I should say, uh, bonjour. Uh, <laughs> man, let me just tell you, uh, Fran, everyone's like, is it good to be back? The answer is no. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> France was so much better. Paris was so much better than we thought it was going to be. Uh, exceeded our expectations in every way. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to do when we went was we didn't want to just like, you know, jump on a bus and go around and see the big touristy things. We wanted to live like a Parisian would live. And so what happened was um, every once in a while, by the way, just the whole stereotype of Parisians being rude and not wanting to speak English is completely wrong. I mean, I just learned, I would come up and say, bonjour, do you speak English? And all of them did, right? And they would help us and direct us. It was just fantastic. Not what you've heard before. But it was interesting because we would always ask people questions like, where would you go for dinner? We want to go where you go, right? We don't want to just go anywhere, but where do you go for dinner? And they would say, well, we have great hamburgers. And I'm like, I, you know, I, I, I didn't come to Paris to eat a hamburger. We have those by our house. And, and, and they would tell us another place. And then the third, the fourth, the fifth, the eighth person said, you know, Paris is known for their hamburgers. And uh, I was like, cool. So, okay. So I pulled out my phone and I opened the, the app. I was like, all right, so what's the name of it? They go, five guys. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? I was like, I have one of those in Altamont. Are you talking, for, for real, five guys. And so I don't know. I was just kind of like, well, maybe it's like this European Union kind of like different cow or something, you know? And uh, so we went to the Champs-Élysées, which is like the most famous road in Paris. And we were just fooling around over there. And it's got all these incredible, these incredible uh, like stores, luxury stores and all this stuff. And right in the middle of it is just an American five guys. And we went in and had a burger. So uh, it, was, it was amazing. Uh, and they were better than here, for sure. Um, and hey, listen, I heard uh, Pastor Rick Garrett closed out the Roman series real strong, too. I heard he did a great job with that. Yeah. So that's the last time Rick's going to preach. Uh, and uh, <laughs> no, you know what a joy it is for me to be able to step away for a couple of weeks and then, uh, you know, have the church just, you know, thrive. Uh, one of the things I just love to hear, our team is strong. We have, I have the best team of any church that I've ever been a part of before. We have people just serving and laying their lives down for you and for this community. And I'm so grateful for them just to be able to step away and do that. And I also wanna say like, if you're the person that sent us, we don't know who sent us, but if you did, it was, it was, it was amazing. Thank you. All right, we're gonna jump into uh, the scriptures right now. And uh, we're gonna talk about uh, what we're going to talk about today, which is uh, we're going to go through First uh, John. Our next series is jumping into First John, and it's called Unfiltered. I'll tell you why it's called Unfiltered in just a little while. But um, if you haven't been around Grace for very long, we basically go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible, because we feel like that's the best way for you to get to know what's on the inside of the Bible, and a lot of people don't know what's on the inside of the Bible. And the, what's on the inside of the Bible is the best way for you to know who God is. And so we want you to grow in your relationship with God. That's why I pray every time before I get up here that grace is a sanctuary, a space where we're not going to do politics and we're not going to do the divisive things of culture. We're going to focus specifically and solely on the scriptures so we can grow together in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's take a look. We're going to look at John, 1 John 1, uh, 1 through 4 today. And let me give you a little bit of background on what's going on uh, with John. John is specifically speaking and addressing and trying to correct an early heresy that was inside the church. Heresy simply means wrong belief, right? And so he's specifically trying to push back this concept called Gnosticism and, dos- and Docetism. And uh, Gnosticism basically taught that Jesus was a principle or an idea, but not an embodied person. Now, the problem with that idea essentially is that if Jesus was not an embodied person, both Paul and John push back against these heresies. If Jesus was not an embodied person, then he did not 
die for our sins, and therefore we're still dead in our trespasses, and there is no heaven that awaits us. This is a massive importance to the early church. In fact, when they were coming up with the ecumenical creeds of the church, the three, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, which are like summary statements of what the Christian faith believes, when they came up with the Apostles' Creed, it was specifically designed to talk about Jesus being a physical person. Listen to the physical language. I won't go through the whole thing, but just listen to the language. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and then we buried him. You see the physical language there? The early church wanted us to recognize that Jesus was a physical person, that he did die for our sins. And every once in a while, you hear people say, like Christians, and I, and I know what they're trying to say, and it's just, it's just wrong. Here's, here's, what they're, here's what they're saying. They'll say, you know what? Even if we're wrong about Jesus and we're wrong about all of this stuff, we still live good lives and everything was fine. Well, that's not what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul actually says, if the resurrection of Jesus is not true, then we are to be pitied above all people because we're fools. And I think that's what's at stake in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. John is going to teach us a little about the nature of Jesus, that he's physical and spiritual. And both of those things are absolutely necessary for you to become the kind of person that God wants you to be. So let's take a look. We'll read verses 1 through 4, then go back to verse 1 and dive into it. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it. And we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then he ends it in verse four by saying, we write this to make our joy complete. There's something so amazing. In fact, it's the most amazing thing about what I do. I don't know if you've ever really thought about what a pastor does, but our job is never done. You never reach spiritual maturity. You never reach being done with your spiritual life. We never get to the point where we go, hey, look, there's John. He's fully sanctified, right? We're always in process. So they understood that same principle too. So when John says, this makes my joy complete, what he's saying in essence is that when you take your next step toward Christ, when you grow in your understanding of God, when you trust him more with your life, boy, there's just nothing like that. It ignites a person who's a teacher because we know that you've taken a step and it brings joy to our hearts. And if you're a teacher, you know exactly what that's like. Even if you teach students, you know, like fourth graders, when they take a step and they learn something new, you're like, yes, this is what he's saying. We want you to have the same joy that we have by watching you grow in your spiritual life. Verse one. So it starts with this phrase, that which was from the beginning. Now, I want you to look at this whole thing for just one second. The first thing I want you to see is he's not saying I, he's saying we, we, and we, right? He's not saying I witnessed Jesus, I saw Jesus, I encountered Jesus. He's saying we did, lots of us did. In fact, after the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to over 500 people gathered together at one time. In the early church, they didn't just have to believe by faith, they also had evidence. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that's which was by faith. Now look at the physical language here. John is, John is saying, listen, I've heard Jesus preach. I've seen what he's done and I've touched him with my hands. You see what he's doing is the same thing the Apostles' Creed's doing. He's saying, look, Jesus was a person in time and space. He existed, he was here with us for this season and then he died and then he was raised from the dead. 
that which was from the beginning. Now, what beginning is he talking about here? He's not talking about the beginning like in the beginning God created. Now, John wants to flip this thing and say, in the beginning, in the beginning of what? In the beginning of all things. Before there was a beginning of anything, there was Jesus. So, so sometimes, you know, when I've done a lot of funerals and, and um, fortunately way more weddings because we have a younger church, but funerals uh, that I've done, people will ask questions like, is he going back to be with God? And I understand what they're saying. They're trying to ask the question, is he going to heaven, right? And of course, if he trusted Christ, the answer to that is yes. But, but, but really, the question of, is he going back to heaven is important. Why? Because that which was from the beginning, that which was ancient of days, and that which will be, that was and is and is to come, is eternal. John is saying, Jesus, this Jesus, he was here before there was a beginning of anything. Jesus lived in a pre-incarnate life with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three form one God, right? And because of that, Jesus lived before he was born into this life. We did not. We are, born, we are created at the moment of conception, right? When that happens, we becoming a living nefesh, a soul, right? And in that moment when we become a soul, that's when our life begins. Watch this, watch this, watch it. And from that point on, we are immortal. We will live forever. But what we are not is eternal, right? Because immortality means I was born into this life, have a soul now, and I will live a souled person for the rest of my life, whether in heaven or apart from God. But God is not like that. He didn't have an ending or he is not just immortal. He's eternal. He goes in both directions. He has always been and he always will be. We are not that way. So John is saying, listen, Jesus, this Jesus, he has been around forever and ever and ever and ever. He is God. He's showing the nature of Jesus as God. Now, it's interesting because there are people who follow all kinds of leaders. You can follow a man. You can follow a woman. In fact, many men and women have followed generals into death because they believed in the cause. But when it comes to following someone for your eternal life, not just your temporal life, but your eternal life, you need someone who has evidence and somebody who has experience in what it means to be in an afterlife or a before life. And that is only Jesus. Only Jesus has the idea and the knowledge of what happens when we close our eyes in this life and awaken in the next. And he's pointed us in the direction of heaven. That which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we, you know, like I've interacted with him. John doesn't have to have faith that Jesus was real because he was his friend. He walked with him. He heard him. He saw him. He touched him. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And that's another description for Jesus, that he is the word of life. Now, it's interesting because John's audience is both Jewish and it's Greek. And he's speaking specifically to them by using this one Greek word right here, okay? And the Greek word is logos, right? And this word logos means word. It has meaning for both Jews and it has meaning for Greeks. And I'll tell you that. Okay, so in the Jewish world, in the Old Testament, um, God spoke primarily in, the early, in, the early, in early Israel through prophets, right? And a prophet would come, and this is what their job was, right? By the way, if a prophet messed up and something they said didn't come true, then they were immediately stoned to death. So how many of you think people were lining up to be prophets in the Old Testament? Not so many, right? But when God said, hey, I want you to be my prophet, a prophet had a unique role. That role was to speak the very words of God. So God would dictate word for word what I want you to say to Israel. 
And because it was coming directly from God, Israel had to obey the prophet. They didn't have to obey the king. They had to obey the prophet. The king had to obey the prophet too, right? So when the prophet said something like that, it had to be obeyed. Why? Because God was speaking. So the Israelites, the Jewish world, sees God wrapped up in his words, that God is encapsulated by his words. Now, this is different than what pastors do today. I am speaking to you, and this is so important for the, I hope you guys are here forever, but this is so important for whatever church you choose down the road, okay? And that's this. I'm speaking about the words of God. I'm speaking about the words of God. And the only degree to which you should listen to a preacher is not how well he communicates or she communicates. The only way that you're supposed to listen to that person is how faithful they are to the word of God. If they are consistent, historical, and biblical in their understanding of the word, then that person has authority in your life. They're not like prophets. You can't, a a pastor can't say, thus saith the Lord. I can say, God said it here, right? And my authority is not the same as a prophet. You don't have to obey me. The Bible says respect, sure. But obey, no. You have to obey the word of God. And so as we teach the word, then you listen to the word. Okay, now listen. For Greeks though, they had a concept that was around hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born into the world. Not before he existed, but just before he was born into the world. And that was this. The logos in Greek was the principal idea of the, of, of the power that ran the entire universe. This is the, this is the thing that moved the cosmos. This is the thing that brought you and your fate and your destiny into the world. This is the logos. And so when John says this, he says, look, Here's Jesus who was eternal from the beginning. He is also the thing that all of you Greeks said, the power that moves the universe, this is Jesus. He identifies what they value the most, the logos, the eternal logos with the person of Jesus and says, Jesus is what you have been looking for your whole entire life. Now it's interesting because one thing that's beautiful about what John's talking about here is that He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen, which we've touched, the word of life has come into the world. And as he has come into the world, he didn't hide himself. I mean, think about what we had before Jesus came into the world. We had a burning bush. We had a donkey that talked. We had a whirlwind. And that's all that you could like discern about God because he was up in the sky and he was hidden from us for generations. The mystery of who God was, was suddenly revealed in the person of Jesus. Here is Jesus. He's talking with his disciples. And one of the disciples says, hey, Jesus, when are you going to show us the Father? And he goes, hey, man, listen, I have been with you. Like when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What I do is exactly what the Father would do. What I feel is exactly what the Father would feel. What I think is exactly what the Father thinks. The Bible describes Jesus as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is an image, an icon of God. He's exactly God. And so when God comes into the world in the form of Jesus, it's no longer a mystery what he looks like. It's no longer a mystery what he thinks. He gives us this stuff, but before that, there was nothing. You see, in the early church, they didn't have to just walk by faith. They walked and trusted by faith, and we'll talk about it in a second, but they also had lots of evidence. You could say, if you don't believe that Jesus was a physical being, just go talk to John. Go talk to Peter, man. That guy walked on water. He was there when Jesus was arrested. Man, we were, John was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. We know that he was real. It's not even, I don't have to trust it. I knew it. 
He, um, they understood it. But as the generations have gone by, people begin to question those things again and say, is Jesus a real person? What was happening? So I'm going to just do a poll right now. And I just tried to use your common sense on this. Okay, here it is. Here, here it is. How many of you believe that George Washington was a real person? Raise your hands. Mm, interesting. Um, have, have you heard him? Did you see him? Have you touched him? <laughs> Who said yes? <laughs> just uh, Stuart. I knew it would be Stuart. Yeah, okay. Get out, Stuart. All right. So, so, so no one's heard him, no one's seen him, and no one's touched him. And, and, and yet... I'm 100% sure that he existed, lived. We, why? Because we have quotes from him? Because people wrote down stuff about him? And because there were eyewitnesses about him? Guess what? We have all those exact same things, and even more, believe it or not, about Jesus. So there is what we're asking you if you're not a Christian. We're not asking you to be dumb. Christianity's not dumb. Christianity is not blind either. Soren Kierkegaard said that sometimes, sometimes faith is like jumping into an abyss. You just close your eyes and jump into the abyss. That's not what we're asking you to do. That's foolishness. There is evidence and necessity, and then there's trust. And that's how you run your entire life. You run your life off of, let me make the best cost-benefit analysis that I possibly can based on the evidence that I have. And then at the end of that, I'm gonna choose to choose a course. And that's what every person in the room who's a follower of Jesus has done at one point or another in their life. And that's what we're asking you to think about right now. Jesus wasn't just physically, uh, he was physically real, but he wasn't just a spirit or a principle. But how do we really know that? We know it because just like George Washington, information is passed down from generation to generation through eyewitness accounts. And that's what we know to be true. But there are two types of people who believe, which makes it sometimes harder and sometimes easier to believe. Take a look at these two types. So there's the, I believe it when I see it person, and I can see it because I believe it. Now, how many of you, another poll, how many of you fall into the first, and you have to vote? All right, here we go. How many of you are in the place where you say, I believe it when I see it? Raise your hands. Yeah, I, I, I'm very much in this, in this kind of worldview too. All right, so I can see it because I believe it. Okay, good, almost 50-50. That's right, and that's about right, right? One room was almost exclusively this. I'm like, wow, check out the doubters, right, okay? But, but... But I believe it when I see it, people are like, I need to know the evidence. And what you do when you think about belief, you measure things out, you look at the evidence, you rationally look at it, you apply the law of non-contradiction to it. Something cannot be A and not A at the same time in the same way. You do all those things in an effort to try to make something clear. And that's good, not bad. And then over here, there are some people who say, I can see it because I believe it. And you do the same thing, but just you emphasize the belief part more than the evidence part. You look at the evidence, and if someone were to come up to you and say, you know, um, you know, uh, the, the leprechauns are real, you go, no, not really. Why? Because there's no evidence of that, right? You would look at that and you go, well, these people have a point. I've got to make sure that I'm looking at evidence, but at some point I make a decision, right? And then all of a sudden, as I make that decision, things become clearer for me, right? And that's exactly right. Why? Because ladies, when you are dating your boyfriend, husband, right? I hope that you did some evidence work, right? I mean, I hope you weren't just like, yeah, he's, you know, alive. Uh, you know, I, you know I, he asked, you know, I don't, just, you know, I hope that you ran a credit report or did something. It's not very romantic, but I would absolutely do that. I'd be like, you know, 750 and up, man. I'm sorry, just like, that's it. If you're not 750, you're not responsible. No, but see, but I would look at that like you got to do some evidence, but here's what happens once you finish the evidence, you have to make a choice. And for many of you fall in that second category, when you make that choice, 
all of a sudden now you go, huh, things are clear. Why? Because you, you measured some stuff, but then you took the leap. It wasn't a blind leap. Why? Because you ran the credit. You did your evidence. You, you, you watched his character, and then you made a choice. And when you made that choice, all of a sudden he just, it flourished. Because that's how faith and evidence works. They're both necessary in order for us to be able to come to a true conclusion about what something exists, what something is true or something is not true. So John is a friend of Jesus. And he says, we have seen him. He didn't say I, he said we. We have seen him, we have heard him, we've touched him. And when God sent Jesus, so important, when God sent Jesus into the world, he did so to make sure that we would have a clear picture of who he is. God was no longer hiding. And here's the thing, there's nothing hidden in Jesus. Nothing at all. There's nothing deceitful. There's nothing disappointing. When God sent Jesus into the world, he wanted to make himself known. He took on physical form, befriended people, walked and talked and lived with others. Even at a job, he was a carpenter. Can you imagine? Someone has furniture from Jesus. I think sometimes we think if we reveal ourselves to other people, that they may not like us that they actually just may be disappointed in us. Listen, if you have trouble doing this, sharing yourself with other people, listen, I'm not saying everybody, not everybody deserves a voice in your life, but there are certain people who you need to share the good stuff and the bad stuff with. And here's why. Because if you can't share it in this direction, you will not share it in this direction. If you are stuck emotionally and relationally, and you could say it the other way around too, if I'm stuck this direction, I will always be stuck this direction too. And we'll talk about that in a second. But for some of us, we just look inside and we go, because I know myself better than you. You and I will look, at each, or we'll look inside and we'll go, there are unmentionable things in here. Things I don't like, things I'm embarrassed about, things I'm ashamed of. There are just parts of me that are rebellious and angry and there are parts of me that are disappointed. There are parts of me that are disappointing, you think, to yourself. And why would I want to share that someone with, something, with someone else? And we've been raised on phrases like, familiarity breeds contempt. Like the more that you get to know someone, the more contemptuous you'll be of that person. And part of that is true because for some of us, we walk around with a kind of like image management system that's at play inside of us, right? We're just presenting the sparkly parts. And if you've been in social media, like on TikTok, or you've been on Instagram Reels, or you've looked at Allure magazine within the last 50 years, there are filters and there are touch-ups and there are all kinds of things. Women have mastered on, on, on uh, TikTok just how to look exactly the right way at the, this is a guy pose, but not a woman pose. Just the right way. I'm never doing that again. I'm never doing that again. That was special. You were here. It happens one time. But they know how to just like, you know, angle themselves for the pictures. And it's funny because now you'll see women actually doing the opposite of that. They'll go on and they'll show, this is really what I look like. And it's an unfiltered view. And I just think it's so brave and so amazing and so right because there's parts of us that are broken and sinful and there's parts of us that are unmentionable and there are parts of us that are just wrong. But when you find the right crew, when you find the right people around you that you can share that with, now you're at a place where you have the ability to have other voices and you also have the Spirit's voice being able to reach into you and change those parts of you. You know, because God doesn't want you to be afraid of yourself. He doesn't want you to be ashamed there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that means self-condemnation as well as condemnation from someone else. And I would say actually more self-condemnation occurs than actual condemnation from other people. And so 
as Jesus reveals himself to us. And this is what we mean when we talk about holiness. When we look at God and say that God is holy, what we mean is he's always consistent. He's the same way on the inside as he is on the outside. Let's talk about that for a second. Same way on the inside as they are on the outside. Here, here, here's, here's what God's doing. He's always joyful. He's always happy. He's always holy. He's always good. He's always loving. He's always kind. He's not gonna wake up one day and decide, I'm just gonna be mean to the world because I've decided to do that and I can because I'm God. God always acts consistently with his character. He cannot act in violation of the nature of who he is. God is righteous. He is holy. And what that means is he's consistent all the time in who he is. And we are not. There are two ways in which, at least two ways, in which we hide from one another. And here they are. Two approaches that we take when it comes to dealing with things we don't want to share with the world. Here we go. This is the one I call the Lizzo approach. This is the boss up and fix your life, right? I don't care what people think, right? And you'll hear Christians say this. I hear people say this all the time. They'll say things like, you know what? I don't care. Listen, I'm going to be me. I'm going to do what I want, think what I want, act like I want. I'm going to just be me, and I don't care what you think at all. Listen, if you're not a Christian in the world, uh, in the room right now, that's fine for you. Like, that's an option for you. But if you're a Christian in the room, that's not optional for us. Do you know why? Because God created you uniquely in this entire world to be a display case for his glory and grace. And because you are a display case of the glory and grace of God, we don't have the option to say, I don't care what people think. Our job is to display the radiance and the goodness and the glory of God. And what that means is that when the world is going crazy around us and they're angry, they're screaming, we are the followers who are peaceful because we are rooted in Jesus, the eternal God who created everything in the entire world, who physically died was resurrected for us and lives for us. Even now, intercedes for us in heaven, the Bible says. We are whole guys because of him. We don't need to be swayed by the world or everybody's opinion about us. So yeah, you can take the boss up approach, but I will say most people that walk around with their chest out, I'm awesome, I'm great, they're afraid. They're not strong, they're afraid. To be spiritually mature means willing to risk vulnerability with someone else. But the other side is, uh, is, is equally uh, fraught with danger. And that is, I have to make everyone like me. This is the people pleaser approach, right? And, and I, I grew up in a, in a very violent home. My father used to beat us. And one of the things that was terrible about growing up in that environment or the skill that I developed early in that as a child was the skill of being able to read a room and to be able to read people. Like I just had to do that. It was like a self-preservation thing. I'd walk in and go, which dad do I have today, right? And if it was the dad that was gonna swing, I knew to stay away. I need to be low key, right? And if it was the dad who's just, you know, normal dad guy, then, you know, everything was fine. Whatever your circumstances are, where you develop that intuitive ability to be able to read other people, the challenge for you is that you're, you're, you have a challenge that, that you could turn yourself into a chameleon, right? Like you could just become for everyone else what they think you are supposed to be. And as a result, they'll never ask you hard questions. It's a way of hiding, you might think it's a good thing, and sometimes it's good because you need to be able to empathize with people. Well, you guys can do that. These are people that grow up to be counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, doctors, whatever, even judges. Like people grow up to be like this because they have the ability to see into a person, not just the surface value of the person, right? And that's fantastic. But the weakness of that view is that you can become all things to all people, little chameleon never knowing who you are. And really why you're doing it is because you don't want someone to ask you the hard question. How are you really doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good just like you are. 
right? So we have this tendency to hide from one another. And again, when God sent Jesus into the world, when he made clear to us who he was, he was not just doing this to say, I'm sending him into the world. He's showing us that we also can make it clear who we are, right? That we have to do that. Proverbs 22.1 says this, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed, to be lifted up is better than silver or gold. Like that's our job, to be the display case of the glory of God. Mature believers are those who aren't afraid to be genuine and real. God's purpose is greater than our plan, guys. God's purposes for our life are always greater than our plans, greater than the false image that we can create, the manufactured person that we put out in front of you, this person that's filled with filters and altering the way that we look, presenting the sparkles. That's our plan. God's plan is bigger than that. He wants you to be whole. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be right. But why? Because we have the gospel. Because you have the gospel, and I want to remind you of it this morning, you have been accepted by God. And this acceptance is so complete that God receives us in all of our brokenness and sin and not counting any of our sins against us. Romans chapter 15 tells us that God is not even, it's not saying that you've arrived. It's not saying that you're no longer sinning. He's just saying, when I look at you now, I see my son, Jesus. I don't see your sin. And even if I did see your sin, I choose not to hold you accountable for it eternally. There may be temporary consequences because God loves us, but he is not breaking fellowship with us. So when we talk about God's holiness, he's always consistent. He's never gonna wake up one day and just say, I now choose to hold all these things against you. So what is consistency? Consistency is being the same way on the inside as you are on the outside. It means there's no bait and switch. It means that we are who we are all the time, that I'm the same way on the inside as I am on the outside. And I tell my kids this. I've taught my kids this forever. Like I tell my kids that when somebody says something terrible to you or does something wrong to you, you have people. You don't have to listen to another person's voice define your life. Why? I teach them three things. I say, listen, you have number one, three priorities in our lives, right? Number one, Jesus is first above all things. Number two, Team Adkins. Number three, the church. And when I talk to them about this through their whole lives, when things go wrong, I remind them, you know, your daddy thinks you're the deal. So when they say these things about you, I think you're the deal. And you know why I'm able to say that? Because I know that my daddy, I know he thinks I'm the deal. And I know he thinks the same thing about you. So when someone comes against you and something's hard and it's ugly and it's terrible, you have people. And guys, you have this church too. You fall down on your face financially, we're there. You fall down spiritually, we're there. Emotionally, we put you in counseling. We're there. But some of this is on you and on you guys online. If you're not connected in relationships inside this church, you're missing the voice of other people to speak into the hard and dark places in your life. People who will speak well and good, promote Jesus in your life, remind you of the gospel, show you that you have people. Don't walk alone. Let me just talk to the guys right now for a second. Men, this is us, this problem. Guys hide from each other all the time. We call it business. We call it busyness. We call it whatever. But we're hiding from one another. You need other men in your life to speak into you in powerful ways so you may grow into the fullness of what God has for you. If you don't have it, you will never grow into that man. You might be good at business. You might make some money. But you'll never be the person that God wants you to be. So I want to challenge you. Get into a small group. 
Get into a community group. Get into something where you are knowing other people in this church who can speak into your life. And by the way, if the first group doesn't work, go to another one. There's nothing wrong with that. It seems like there is a struggle inside of us that there are parts of us that always remain hidden, but it doesn't have to be this way. Verse one, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning Jesus, the word of life. Verse two, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you eternal life, which was from the Father and has appeared to us. See, this part right here where it says, As Jesus comes, the life appeared to us. He means the life of Jesus appeared to us, but the life that we take hold of appeared to us as well. Like we were changed by the coming of Jesus. Why? Because we moved from relating to God in the Old Testament as this lawgiver and this distant God who produced these great miracles, you know, the the Jordan River, you know, coming, not the Jordan River. This is why you don't make stuff up on 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 the spot. Right, just when the river that they came out of, uh, that when they came, the the Red Sea, that's it. When the Red Sea parted, when the Red Sea parted, yeah, I knew there was a great miracle there. The red the Red Sea parted. Right in that moment, God was magnificent and glorious. In this moment, He's intimate. He is my God. He is with me. He is for me. There were foreshadowings of what was going to happen in First John all the way back in the Old Testament. David, who was king over Israel, God said of him. He's a man after my own heart, right? They were connected. And look what David says to to, to God. Hey God, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. In other words, now I hear you for the first time. I can see you. I know what you want. You're visible to me. And he says, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. I was doing all of this performance for you. I was doing the spectacle of religious performance. I was pretty on the outside. Everything looked great on the outside. I was doing the right things, but here's what happened. He says, you did not require it. This is not what you wanted. Verse seven, what did he want? Here I am, I've come. This is what God wants from you. Whether you're not a Christian in the room or you're a Christian in the room, he wants you to come and say, here I am, man. I don't, I don't know everything about you. I'm not sure what my next step is, but I'm gonna make myself available. Here I am. I present myself to you, Why? Because when we show up in our relationship with God, God then turns back around and says, yes, I will show up now, right? When you present yourself before God, he says, I will be with you. Verse eight shows what's happening on the inside of David's heart. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law was within my heart. In other words, all these things that you told us that we have to do found in the law, now they're not out here for me to do. They're not rules that I have to follow. They're in my heart. I want to do them. You know, when, you, you know, when a husband loves his wife, or a wife loves her husband, they never have to be told, don't cheat. Never. They don't want to. Why? Because their spouse is in their heart. No one has to tell me to be faithful because she's in my heart. And David said, Father, you're in my heart too. You don't have to tell me to be righteous anymore. You don't have to tell me to be good. I want to be because I've been changed. There is an obstacle on the road to presenting yourself to God. And it is the greatest obstacle that has led more people away from God than anything else in human history. And we're gonna, in three weeks from now, we're gonna look at this thing in detail again. But I'm just gonna intro it right now. It's called self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. 
So self-sufficiency leads to self-righteousness and self-righteousness leads to self-destruction. More people have fallen away from God because of self-reliance and self-sufficiency than any other thing in human history. Let's define a couple of these things. Self-sufficiency is the belief that everything I have and am is because of me. If you believe, and it's just not, again, let's look at reason and rationality and evidence. If you believe you are a self-made man or woman, that's ridiculous. The Bible tells us that even the ability to generate wealth was given to us by God. You know what that means? Well, you go, well, I worked hard. I did the right things. You did, right? You know why? Because God gave you the capacity to work hard. He gave you opportunities. And you know what he did? He gave you wisdom to make the right decisions. Sometimes he even gave you the capacity to take risks when no one else would. And you took advantage of those things. I'm good on you. But behind your decisions were his influence in your life. None of us are independent from God. And when we come to the realization that dependence upon God is not a weakness, but a strength because he is eternal and we're connected now to the power source of all of the universe, things change. Self-righteousness is the belief that because I am self-sufficient, I don't need anyone or anything to make myself whole. It's a lie in our culture today. I am enough. You're not enough. I'm not saying you're not awesome. You are. You're amazing but you're not enough because if you were enough, you would not need Jesus. Jesus opens eternal life to us. The last part of this, self-righteousness or self-destruction rather is the result of a self-sufficient life. More people have fallen away from God because they relied on themselves to make themselves whole and it led to tragic outcomes. Verse three and four, Here's how it ends. John ends with these verses with an antidote to self-sufficiency. What do we do? How do we fix it? And he says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. He points it back to Jesus. And he says, we've seen him, we've heard him. And whatever you believe about him, we want you to believe in that because we want you to be in fellowship with us. We want you to be connected to us. We want you to love Jesus like we love Jesus. And I want you to know if you're not a Christian in the room, that is 100% my bias and goal when you're here. I want you to take your time. I want you to measure it. I want you to weigh it. I want you to look at the evidence of it. And then I want you to trust just like you do in something else in your life. And what you'll find is that because he's holy and he is consistent, same way on the inside as he is on the outside, he will absolutely never be disappointing to you. And when you invest your life in Jesus, you'll never be ashamed. Amen? Father, we're so grateful that you gave us eternal life through Christ. And what we wanna do, God, is we wanna grow into the people that you've called us to be. We wanna become the type of person that you called us to be. So Father, strengthen us, guide us, lead us, help us. Give us whatever we need right now, God, because we wanna present ourselves before you. We wanna say, here I am, Lord. And we ask God that you would take our lives and build beautiful and glorious things out of them. May we trust you more than we did when we came in the room. It's your name we pray, amen.